the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. This is a rapid reaction episode. An important trial was released. You want to know about it, but maybe haven't had enough time to dive in just yet. So start right here. Now, off the bat, we're doing something a little bit different today. So the two trials being highlighted haven't actually been published yet. They have been discussed at the 2023 European Stroke Organization Conference, or ESOC, in May. But these have not been published in print. Now, what are the two trials? So the timeless trial is looking at the safety and efficacy of an extended window tenecteplase in thrombectomy-eligible patients. And optimal BP is comparing the effect of intensive versus standard blood pressure lowering post-thrombectomy. And I'm joined by the awesome Leslie Hamilton. And we discuss what we know about timeless and optimal BP so far. So we searched social media, mainstream news sites, everywhere we could to pass along the information that we know. But then obviously, we also discuss the facts that we'll want to see once the trial is published. So this is really fun, something new. Um, so definitely let me know what you think. Thank you to all. All who submitted nominations for the 2023 Pharmacy to Dose Awards. The turnout was amazing. Excited to announce the nominees shortly. So stay tuned for that voting info. Now, a rapid reaction episode covering not one, but two studies that have not yet been published begins right now. And I'm here today with none other than Leslie Hamilton. Uh, now, Leslie is an associate professor of clinical pharmacy and a neurocritical care clinical pharmacist at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and the University of Tennessee Medical Center. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Nick. Thank you so much for having me today on the pod. Uh, this is going to be an absolute blast. And like we said in the intro, we're highlighting two trials that were released pre-publication. So there's no, we don't have PDFs. We were scavenging the internet looking for all the details we could find. This is from the European Stroke Organization Conference in Munich, Germany. I mean, these conferences, like these international ones are amazing. Have you ever been to Germany, Leslie? Yes, I have. I'm, I'm in fact going to um, Munich this fall for Oktoberfest. What about you, Nick? Have oh, you have you been to Germany yourself? I have. I have. The I actually took German in high school because when you're a junior, you were guaranteed to go to Germany. So yeah, that's a fantastic reason. It is. Although I could probably use some some Spanish in my life right now. There's not German doesn't do much for you in the medical field, but uh, and then you mentioned Oktoberfest. That's I, we went there a few years ago, and it's uh, it's an absolute blast. the The funny story is we tried to reserve a table, and so to do that, you have to send a w international wire transfer to pay for it. So I'd never done that before. So you send it, 
and you're just like, you just hope, you hope you did it right. You hope you didn't screw up one of the numbers, but uh, it's an absolute blast. You're going to have so much fun. But let's get started, I think. So we're going to talk about two trials, right? Timeless and optimal BP. But let's get started with the drug of the moment, right? Tenecteplase and the timeless trial. So the timeless trial was a phase three prospective double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial of thrombolysis in imaging-eligible late-window patients to assess the efficacy and safety of tenecteplase, the timeless trial. So Basically, they're attempting to answer, should we give thrombolysis prior to thrombectomy in that extended time window? And is giving late window thrombolysis safe and or effective? So, Leslie, where do we stand with stroke interventions in that extended time frame? Because, you know, this trial is looking at both thrombolysis and thrombectomy up to 24 hours post-symptom onset. Well, as most of the listeners probably know about the DAWN uh, trial and the DIFFUSE trial, so just as a quick review to get everybody on the same page before we talk about timeless, if you remember, um, the DAWN trial looked at thrombectomy 6 to 24 hours, but again, TPA was only, and remember, we're going to be talking about TPA in a lot of these trials in all place um, that was uh, previously used in these trials, and um, they found better outcomes um, in patients who had an NCA or an ICA exclusion. DIFFUSE Three was also very similar. Um, they looked at six to 16 hours, same vessels, MCA and ICA. And again, their alt place was given with four and a half. So the question that kind of led us to is, well, what about beyond four and a half hours for our thrombolytic, um, regardless of whenever the thrombectomy occurs? So if you all have not read the meta-analysis that was in Lancet in 2019, I'm going to summarize just very briefly to kind of set the stage for timeless. And they looked at three trials, the EXTEND, the ECAS-4 um, EXTEND, and then the FSS uh, trial as well. They were also looking at Alteplase. So again, all these trials are Alteplase compared to Timeless, which is Connecteplase. But what was interesting in the patients um, who got either placebo or Alteplase, placebo, the mean administration time was about eight hours. So we have a little bit of literature going past four and a half. And then the active group got TPA at about eight hours um, as well from the last known normal. What's cool when they compiled and looked at all this stuff in the meta-analysis, they had um, improved uh, modified Rankin. And as Nick and I will be talking about today, modified Rankin is looking at uh, patient um, mor- uh, morbidity types of outcomes and how functional outcomes and how they're going to uh, do at certain time periods. And they had improved modified Rankins of zero to one, but they also did have more hemorrhage with all plates. So I think that is a good place to kind of set us into the stage, um, Nick, about what Timeless looked at. I think that's a really good point you made that these trials up to this point are all to place. And although we understand there might be some class effect, we also understand that there are differences, right? That's why a lot of people are are making the switch from all to place to text place. So I think that's a, uh, a really good point. So... Like previous rapid reaction episodes, what we'll do is I'll kind of give a brief intro into the study methodology, and then Leslie will go right into the results. So the inclusion criteria, right? So the adult patients with a baseline NIH stroke skill score of at least five, 
um, five or greater, and they had acute ischemic stroke onset from within four and a half hours to 24 hours. And then they found on MRI or CTA a um, ICA M1 or M2 occlusion um, or finding that kind of target mismatch profile. So this was, they were using the advanced stroke imaging study, right? Well-designed imaging per those um, previous trials. And they include this was at North American sites, right? Phase three randomized double blind placebo control, right? All the things that we like. Um, now, one big thing, right? They excluded patients who received anticoagulants within 48 hours. So, you know, information we always like to know. And this was from March 2nd, 2019 through February 28th, 2023. And 96% of patients were randomized at a comprehensive stroke center. So they um, included 458 patients, um, with about a mean age of 72, about half of them were women, and the mean NIH stroke scale was 12, and the me- median aspect score was 8, right? So these are these are big strokes, these are sick people, and um, 77% of these patients ended up going undergoing thrombectomy, with 227 of those having an M1 occlusion. So intention to treat analysis, and, and like Leslie mentioned, the primary outcome is that 90-day um, functional outcome kind of the based on the MRS scale. So Leslie, what did the what did the trial end up finding based on the results at least that we've kind of seen so far? Um, thanks, Nick. So based on the reports we've seen so far, as he mentioned, the primary outcome was looking at the ordinal modified ranking and it was at 90 days. And they found no difference between their groups. It was 48 uh, 40, excuse me, 46% in the place group and 42% in placebo. But where there starts to be a signal, which I think will be where Nick and I will discuss a little bit more once we finish talking about the trial, is looking at the patients with an M1 occlusion. There were 227 of the overall patient population ended up having an M1 occlusion. And when they looked at modified Rankin and they defined a favorable outcome of 0 to 2 and at 90 days, they found a statistically significant difference. P-value was 0.017. And the um, percentages was 45.9% uh, in the um, in the treatment group and then 31.4% in the placebo group. So, you know, that's kind of giving us some signaling maybe, maybe in that particular, um, particular type of occlusion, we might, you know, have some benefit. But then they also looked at um, a, a modified rank and shift analysis, and that shift analysis, they did not find statistical significance. Uh, P-value was 0.051. Um, most, about half of these patients had an M1 occlusion. It was the most common uh, type of large vessel occlusion. Um, other types being M2 and ICA um, uh, types of occlusion. So the authors really uh, called this exploratory hypothesis generating and that as us as readers and, um, and those investigators, that there were really no formal conclusions that could, could or should be drawn from this data. And when we think about this, there's a lot of secondary outpoints, endpoints. I'll be excited to read this when the trial comes out and look at all the different um, data that they have. They did find a higher rate of complete recanalization at 24 hours post-randomization. And that was in um, about 77% of the next place group and about 64% of placebo. Now, what I think most of us are wondering, hey, there's the efficacy. What about the safety concerns? Um, there was no really difference in uh, symptomatic ICH and IPH. They also looked at not just symptomatic, but any type of ICH, really no difference, no difference in death, and serious um, adverse drug events um, were really no difference as well. 
So why we did not while we did not see a overall difference in efficacy, except maybe in that M1 subset of patients, uh, there were no really safety concerns um, that were seen. So um, I'll let you kind of give some more information at this point, Nick. Yeah, they mentioned, boy, that um, that M1 subgroup, right? The confidence interval of 1 to 2.5. So I'm wondering how many times they re-ran that statistical analysis to see, <laughs> to see if we could get that 1.01. Um, but yeah, exploratory hypothesis generating analysis, no formal conclusions, right? They have that all throughout um, the talks and some of the things about it, but definitely interesting, right? Now, what is your what is your ultimate takeaway from this? Based on what we know now, how do you do you think there's any application from this trial to the patients that you treat on a daily basis? We probably don't have enough information. What I would love to see future trials do, and I know there's some that are kind of in the works right now, is um, maybe divide out this M1 subset and see if um, those patients specifically have a benefit. And then we could offer, you know, that opens up treatment for us for those patients, which um, we may only at this time be able to offer um, thrombectomy. That's kind of what I would like to see. But at this point, I don't think practice will change because we need a little bit more data at this time. Yeah, and it's uh, the... I think the couple of talking points, because I think there are considerations when we go kind of going into the trial. And one of the big things is, I think this shows how much easier it is to give tenecteplase as your thrombolysis, because the time to tenecteplase pre-thrombectomy it was 20 minutes. And the authors basically were talking about how they thought there was going to be a longer time that they were thought that the, the so that the drug would have more time to actually have onset. And I think that probably plays a part with 96% of these patients being at a comprehensive stroke center and you're not getting as many. They got thrombolysis at the outside hospital that is then transferring to the stroke center for more thrombectomy and kind of care after that. So I'm curious what, what that would what that would look like in those patients. Cause I'm wondering if you would see more benefit if more time to affect. Yeah. And the authors kind of hypothesized too. They were surprised because they thought there'd be more of an effect in the M2 patients, uh, you know, with, with this, uh, since those were, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, smaller clots and things, but they, you know, they were kind of surprised they found the benefit in the M1 patients. And so, Something I kind of wonder is if there had been a longer time, and the authors hypothesized um, or and kind of thought through this, if it had been a longer time between the next place and um, and uh, from back to me, maybe some of the more more of the M2 occlusions would have been broken down. But you know, I'm glad they included it, so we do have some data about M2, ICA, and M1s as well. We we don't see this data, but the, during the presentation, the authors are discussing that the. They actually found some of the biggest benefit when tenecteplase was given right in the neuro IR sweep before thrombectomy, which I was a little surprised by that because that's just something that's not necessarily what we do at our center. And at most places I know, it's not necessarily the case as well. So kind of an, an interesting finding. I'm wondering what will come from that. I, I agree. I think another finding that um, I think was a little surprising and gives us some more data is that um, patients with a higher NIH stroke scale and also older patients. So those, you know, sometimes give you a little pause when you're thinking about risk of bleeding. They didn't have, um, they didn't have a reduced likelihood of a favorable outcome. So I think that's a really good signaling for us about um, those types of patients. 
So you mentioned you can't wait to get this studied and, and to kind of dive in and see some of the details and things. So do you have like a wish list of, of things? Is, is there a couple things that you would like to see or that you're curious about that, that you'll kind of be, be perusing either through the discussion or the supplementary appendix trying to find? I think one of the biggest things for me, Nick, is exactly when tenecteplase was given um, from last known normal um, and also uh, if they are able to determine stroke onset. So that's something that we don't, we don't know yet. We don't know what the median time is yet to compare that to the Lancet meta-analysis. Um, so that's, that's one uh, big thing um, that I'm interested in seeing. And I'm, I'm really also interested in seeing some of, more of the secondary endpoints, some of those things that come out, because there's a lot of things they looked at, both from an efficacy and a safety standpoint. So I'll be curious um, uh, when those items come out. What about you? The other thing that I that I always like to see is the is the baseline characteristics. I know it's a it's a North American trial, but it's one of those I always like to just peek and just make sure, you know, does this look like it kind of represents the the people that I treat that that we see here? Um, and it's probably more likely when it is a quote unquote local, like a US based study, but but that's one of the big things I look at because a lot of times you'll see literature from maybe France or, or Korea or things. And it's like, how, how does that translate over? So that'll be kind of more right. discussion to some of that'll be um, an interesting piece. So we mentioned that we're, we, we kind of had to peruse the internet a little bit to, to find this information. And so um, there, you know, we went to, to Twitter, there was a, a couple Instagram posts, but then there were a few, I don't know if medical blogs is the right word. It would be kind of medical news sites, right? Like like Medscape or things like that. And so um, we're going to play a game and it's going to be misleading headlines because this is a, I don't think in medicine I'm as used to seeing these, but we will, we'll talk about them. So the, the Medscape article says a Slight trend towards benefit in the tenecteplase group in the shift analysis with an odds ratio of 1.13. And yet, they even include the confidence interval in that discussion. It's not even like they leave it out. They include it in there. And the confidence interval, of course, crosses one. So, like, does anybody fact check that headline? Like, how can they say that? I don't know. I feel like this is, you know, when people say fake news, um, it kind of makes you wonder, yeah, why is someone not fact-checking checking the statistics on this? It, it's That's not even the worst one, though. All right, so shout-out to Neuronews um, for taking the award here. So the quote is, results from the timeless trial represent fantastic news on the safety of IV tenecteplase in selected late-window stroke patients, comma, Despite the drug failing to meet its pre-specified primary and secondary endpoints. Um, Leslie, what? <laughs> I know. And until you actually, like, if you just read the headline, you're like, okay, what's this fantastic news? And it's not an efficacy related fantastic news. I mean, it's great that they have better safety, uh, good safety with ICH, but like, that's not my leading headline. If I was um, a writer for, um, you know, the news press uh, that I would say. Yeah, definitely a clickbait because it does. I mean, they they do come down and you're exactly right. It does show the low rate of ICH, which is an important thing, right? We want to know that it is safe in these things, 100%. Um, My ultimate kind of, my, my, my other like last kind of big question as we're talking about this timeless trial is, do you think these results would be different if they 
focused on patients with acute ischemic stroke without the LVO. And I ask that because we know an LVO thrombectomy, right, is the ultimate treatment. That's what you ultimately want them to do. So how much was it the thrombolysis versus the thrombectomy when, you know, 77% of patients underwent thrombectomy and um, it was, yeah, 77, 76.7% had complete recanalization at 24 hours. So and we don't know the results, but um, I have to think a lot of those got thrombectomy. So how would the results change if we changed the patients? You know, with the, as our listeners know about the differences between connect place and alt place, you know, it lasts longer. And so I would think that patients, even if they ha- didn't have a large vessel occlusion, probably would have um, derived some benefit. The only thing in terms of the data that we know so far is that even though um, an N2 occlusion, you know, can, can be considered and they went for thrombectomy, those patients didn't have as good of an in, um, a result as the N1 um, patients did. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm not sure, but I think that would have been, maybe that's another trial that someone can do looking um, at an extended window for patients who don't have a, an LVO. I'm sure this will be a trial. I, the one thing you get, you got to give it to the stroke community. If there is an exploratory hypothesis or finding, they are going to research that. And that's, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that in a great way, right? It's you're, you're taking the data you have and trying to figure out the best way to improve the care here. So, um, a, we found that it's safe, but maybe not as effective. So, um, be curious when that, when that full text PDF kind of comes out. So let's stay in the ischemic stroke thrombectomy world, right? As we come in and talk about the optimal BP trial. So the optimal BP, that's the, the full title is the effect of intensive versus conventional blood pressure lowering after successful intraarterial thrombectomy in acute ischemic stroke, the optimal BP randomized controlled trial. So this was presented by Dr. Nam from uh, an institution in South Korea. And basically the ultimate goal they were hoping to answer is if more intensive blood pressure control improves outcomes post thrombectomy. Now, talking about this trial, we have to discuss the Enchanted 2 MT study because those results actually caused the optimal BP study to stop enrollment early, basically right at the same time it appeared. So, Leslie, give us a brief overview as to the findings from the Enchanted 2 and how that kind of affected the optimal BP trial. So, as Nick mentioned, the optimal BP trial that we'll talk about is um, in South Korea. The Enchanted 2 um, MT trial is in China. So as you're thinking about demographics, think about that as you're comparing it to either a European or a uh, North American population. So it was um, pretty similar. They um, had a they had two groups. One group, they uh, targeted less than 120 for systolic blood pressure. Other group was 140 to 180. And they targeted that within one hour. And they kept that um, those ranges for up to three days. However, what they found in these patients is that there was an increased likelihood of a poor functional outcome. They had more early neurodeterioration, and they were more likely to have a major disability. So those are big endpoints that, you know, are going to cause you pause thinking, okay, we're, ca- we're causing harm. The other thing is um, when you're looking at some safety um, outcomes, they did not find a difference in ICH, but they did have those other outcomes. One thing I want to specifically mention before we talk about optimal BH, BP, excuse me, um, is 
how, uh, what was the mean uh, blood pressure um, in each of those, those um, groups? So for the group that was a less than 120 goal, it was interesting, the mean blood pressure was 125. So how often were they actually meeting their um, their blood pressure goal? That was at one hour, and then it was 121 at 24 hours. So regardless, the mean was not that goal. Um, in the non-intensive group, which their goal was 140 to 180, they um, their mean was 143 at one hour, but then at 24 hours, it was 139. And you see this with a lot of, whether it's um, ICH trials or ischemic stroke trials, they have these blood pressure ranges, but a lot of times they're, they're not in the target for most of the time. It's really hard um, to look at, um, at those differences. And one last thing um, I want to mention is the um, non-intensive group had, and the intensive group had quite a, quite a few patients who actually had systolics less than 100, which is uh, a little bit frightening in a ischemic stroke patient. Yes. It was almost half the patients in the intensive group. So there's a lot of things that um, that were discovered in this trial um, that really kind of caused you pause as we move into our um, optimal BP uh, trial discussion. And then just so we're everyone's on the same page going into optimal BP, what's the what, what's the guideline recommended blood pressure range in these patients? Luckily, the Europeans and the Americans agree. It's great that they their guidelines actually agree, and it's less than 180 over 105. So um, at least right now, you know, that's what our guidelines tell us is to have a, a much higher blood pressure target. I mean, basically, that's the that's the blood pressure you keep under when just after anyone's had thrombolysis, right? So it's the same yeah. kind of blood pressure goal there. Okay. So yeah, got it. going into the optimal BP methodology before Leslie goes into the findings, I just want to say this again, right? No, th- this trial has not been published. We scoured the internet to get these results. You're, you're hearing them first. So I just want to let you know that like, you know, we, we don't necessarily have all the answers, but we're going to tell you what we do know. Now, um, like we mentioned, the, it was stopped early due to those safety concerns. But what patients kind of were included here? So there was within two, they were enrolled within two hours after a successful thrombectomy. Adult patients greater than 20 years, right? So the, the teenagers not included, and they had a systolic blood pressure greater than 140. Um, and the baseline characteristics, so uh, Korean study, so 19 stroke centers in South Korea. Now, 1,600 patients were eligible and 306 patients were enrolled. So put a pin in that. I'd like to know that answer of, of exclusion criteria, what happened there. Um, mean age was 73. About 40% were women. The average NIH prior to thrombectomy was 13, and that time from onset to randomization was eight hours. Um, and the, the only other kind of big point is it didn't meet significance, but worth noting that the mean infarct volume in that intensive group was just under 61 mLs, whereas the conventional group was about 42 mLs. Um, and in the two groups, it was intensive, the intensive group, which you were targeting a systolic less than 140 or the conventional targeting that 140 to 180. So this was 24 hours post procedure. Now in this trial, nicardipine was the preferred blood pressure agent, but they note that, um, they followed local treatment protocols. So if, if a local protocol recommended something different, they may do that. But nicardipine was the workforce here. And that primary efficacy outcome was the 90-day favorable functional outcome on that MRS scale. So Leslie, what did we, what did they ultimately find in the optimal BP trial? 
Well, compared to the previous trial, they actually found harm in this trial. And again, using the 90-day uh, modified ranking of zero to two as their goal, about 39% of the patients in the intensive group versus 54% um, in the conventional group had dysfunctional, um, favorable functional outcome. Odds ratio was 0.56. But then they go on to tell us that a poor outcome was 1.84 times more likely if you were receiving intensive treatment. And they had a number needed to harm, which is pretty low, of 6.6 .6 patients. They had a lot of other, um, we don't know all the secondary outcomes, but we do, we do have some of them. Um, the one that is probably the most concerning is the risk of edema, um, and they call it malignant um, edema. It was almost 8% in the intensive group um, compared to about 1%, and that was statistically significant, p-value 0.012. No difference in ICH, no difference in 90-day mortality. Of course, more patients achieved a lower blood pressure, less than 140 in the in more intensive group. Um, and then uh, there was no difference in NIH stroke score at 24 hours, recanalization, 30-day outcomes with modified ranking, and um, in terms also of quality of life. But then they did a little better job compared to the Enchanted 2MP trial in terms of the percentage of time they were actually in their goal. Um, so the mean blood pressure in the intensive group was 129 versus 138 in the conventional groups. That's still also frustrating because if your mean pressure is less than your goal, I mean, what, that's hard to interpret. Um, but they did have about 83% of the time in the intensive group, the patients were in their goal range versus 42%. So they did not do a great job. Now, as, as bedside clinicians, we know it's hard to keep patients' blood pressure right in the range. But in a clinical trial, you know, they, um, their means definitely did not match what, um, what the group um, were. And then finally, the researchers had some interesting outcomes that they noticed um, that the, the outcomes did worsen at a lower level in the intensive treatment group. And the lowest, but the lowest risk in the, um, that was found was at a 24 hour mean to solid blood pressure of 140 millimeters of mercury. Whereas the conventional group found worse outcomes at a higher blood pressure. So we know don't go too high, don't go too low. Kind of a sweet spot in the middle is probably where we need to be uh, targeting. And they had a U-shaped relationship looking at systolic blood pressure during this time, and they showed that odds of a poor outcome. Yeah, the I really, I like that they dive into these blood pressure findings. The other thing that I thought was notable was you know, they said the, the lowest risk was at that mean of 140. And when they, the researchers, they published the percent of patients who had a pressure less than 140. And it was 80% in that intensive group, but still 54% in the conventional treatment group. And hey, I, we absolutely get how hard it is to control blood pressure, but that's a 40 millimeter range. Sometimes we have to work with 10 or maybe 20 for most of them. And so, um, be curious, the findings, right? Are they, you know, are they hypertensive at baseline or maybe they're normotensive, right? And so they were lower right. because they weren't doing anything. So that would be, I'll be very curious, the findings of those, the, the baseline characteristics, how many of them had hypertension and what those pressures right. looked like kind of going into it. So right. ultimately when you combine these findings with the Enchanted 2 findings, which although they're, they're a little different, they're kind of the same, right? What's our 
thinking about our blood pressure in thrombectomy, what's kind of the, the biggest takeaway with, with these trials? Well, I still think, you know, our guidelines are our best, at least with the data we have so far, are our best um, um, place to direct us, keeping it less than 180 over 105. We know there's harm when you get too low. Now, I don't know that we know the sweet spot yet if it needs to be less than 150 or, you know, if there's another kind of number in between there. But um, we do know, you know, once you start getting less than uh, 140 at a point, there's probably going to be some harm there. But then we also have to be careful, you know, not to get too high um, because there's harm on the, um, both ends of the scale. And so, you know, I've kind of mentioned some of the things that I'm waiting to see. What are some of the stuff that you're that you're looking for as this trial gets, um, you know, released in print? like to know the number of patients who got connected place. Um, I don't think that we know that. Um, so, I, you know, we know these patients got thrombectomy, but how many people got thrombolytic as well? And the other thing that I think would be good to know is how successful is the repanelization? Like what type of sticky score did they get? That part, I don't, I mean, hopefully that will be in the full publication. Those are, those are some things um, that I, I would like to see once the trial comes out. That's a really good point about the recanalization because if they had a really low rate of it, it would make sense that a lower blood pressure would do really bad things for you. Um, so why explain, explain to us, the, the listeners, why is, why is being on the U-shaped curve either too high or too low, like post recanalization, why is that bad? Like what, what's the mechanism? Cause I think sometimes it can be confusing. Like, wait, so they get they get thrombolysis and it's less than 180, but then yeah, you know I think there's confusion between why um, uh, blood pressure can be too low or too high and what causes that. So what? Give us a little detail into that. I think some things that I think about when you're thinking about you know what blood pressure should be is how well are you perfusing things, and also as you mentioned previously, what's a patient's baseline blood pressure? If they live at home in the 150s and we are keeping them in the 120s, they're not perfusing like they normally are. So those are some things that I think about is, is just overall perfusion um, for those patients. And then as they found in this trial, especially with the intensive group, is they're causing more edema. So are we causing cytotoxic edema in these patients? And so then they're, it's going to take them longer um, and we're going to have worse outcomes because of the edema. So I think in some of the toxic uh, you know, damage from stroke that causes edema, the risk of um, decreased perfusion are some of the things I think about um, when I'm thinking about that patient population. So are there, are there studies that are, that we're looking for? Are there, are there other kind of trials that are, that are going to help us look at blood pressure management post thrombectomy or we, is, is this the book, the, the chapter that we kind of have so far? Well, I would like to see, I mean, I appreciate this trial a lot, but um, also maybe either a European or North American trial. This was done in Korean patients. Um, and so it's, it's a good, a very good start. Um, there also is the best two trial and the BP target trial um, that have kind of looked at this as well. Um, and so we still don't have a um, definitive answer. So I think what I'd like to see is a European or a North American and maybe even do a less than 160 um, or less than 150, kind of look at different ranges. We know low is bad, but where is the sweet spot in terms of the target of where we really should be targeting? And then I have to highlight the the best tweet I saw about all of these. So I'll have to say this was in German. So we translated this. 
someone was highlighting the findings of the optimal BP trial, and it says, get low, not after thrombectomy. So get low, all I hear is the Little John song starting in the back of my head. But um, this was awesome. I really liked being able to kind of highlight these things so the listeners are able to kind of anticipate coming out. They're going to be able to look for some of the some of the biggest things. Um, Leslie, thank you so, so much for coming on. Where can the listeners find you on Twitter? How can they reach out to you? I am Twitterless. Um, so I, I am one of those that does not have Twitter, but... Um, Nick, maybe if you can put my email um, when you post this on social media, I'm happy to take um, happy to take questions. And one thing I want to point out, you know, you mentioned that German may not be useful. Hey, it helps you translate that tweet, right? So it is useful. I wish the only thing that I like remember how to say is like, um, where's the library, right? Or, you know, yeah, I, I'll have to say Google helped me with that. But yes, we will keep looking for ways to bring that German back in. <laughs> um, Leslie, thank you so much again. This was a blast and uh, appreciate your your time coming on. Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks again to Leslie. Uh, always a wealth of, of knowledge and love working with her. Uh, be sure to get in touch uh, with her. Uh, no Twitter, like she said, but her email, lesliebug at hotmail.com. And looking to get in touch with me, uh, social media at pharmacy to dose, website pharmacy to dose.com. And of course, by email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, reference list with some of the articles we discussed, links to the, the news websites we talked about, and more featured in that episode description as well as pharmacytodose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the content and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. The user or patient should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.